If you would have watched a guy named Thomas Phillips in his career, you'd be pretty impressed. Thomas Phillips was born in Istanbul, grew up in Boston, got his degrees, both undergrad and masters from Virginia Tech, and started working for a company called Raytheon. And this company was falling apart, and he got more and more leadership. And Thomas Phillips became CEO of Raytheon in the 1960s. Now, to give you a little clue of some of the stuff he was working on, he was working on missile defense systems. And he helped on the team that created the Patriot Missile Defense System, something we still use today in defense for the US. He also helped on the teams create lunar computers for the Apollo missions. So this guy was part of some incredible stuff. And he was CEO until 1990 on the board till 2000. And now what is a $25 billion a year defense company? A pretty impressive resume. And Thomas Phillips died two months ago. And when he was interviewed about his life and what his legacy was, all those things I just named weren't part of it. It was about the impact that he had on people. And actually his impact on one particular person, a man named Chuck Colson. Now if you don't know who Chuck Colson is, Chuck Colson was President Nixon's hatchet man, part of the Watergate scandal. He ended up going to jail for obstruction of justice in the 1970s. But during while all that stuff is going on, less than a year before Chuck Colson went to jail, he had this great friend named Thomas Phillips. And Thomas Phillips shared with him about who Jesus was, shared with him the Bible, and Chuck Colson gave his life to Christ. And in doing so, went into prison and left prison with a heart to serve prisoners and their families. And he created Prison Fellowship, which is now Prison Fellowship International, one of the leaders in prison ministries, prison reform. It's a ministry we partner with as a church, and our small groups are involved with serving families on the outside. And it's the impact that Thomas Phillips had on Chuck Colson. Those are the things he talked about. Because when we get to our deathbed, we're not going to be thinking about the money we've amassed or the corporations that were successful. It's going to be the people that we influence. It's going to be our siblings, our kids, our grandkids, our nieces, our nephews, our friends, our coworkers, because we know that making an impact on one person might not change the world, but it might change the world for that person. And so how do we be a people that do that, change the world for the people that we are impacting? How do we have a lasting legacy? Well, that's what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 20 and how to have a lasting legacy and what it means to be the church. And so if you'd open up, we're in Acts 20. We, Paul has been the center character for quite a while here. He's kind of the expert church planner from the most anti-Christian murderer to expert church planter. And he has been traveling around. And the passage we're looking at today is very unique in this way that Paul has been doing all of these speeches 
and preaching to all these mixed crowds, believers and unbelievers, but this is the only time in the book of Acts in which he's called Christian leaders together. And he's going to speak directly to Christian leaders. What does it mean to be the church? What does it mean? And on top of that, it's a farewell speech. It's his parting words. As you'll see, he says he's moving to Jerusalem. He sees prison in his future and possibly death and says to them, this is the last time you will see me face to face. So it's the last time he's going to see them. It's Christian leaders, what the church is going to be, what the legacy is that they're going to leave. So I think that's where we need to lean in and listen to what Paul has to say here in the text. So we're going to start in verse 17. Here it goes. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. So he sent to them to come to him. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Stop there. As you can see, Paul's giving these final instructions, reminding people of what he showed them, what he did there, what Jesus had shown him and now showing others. And along the way, that's where we've seen these three keys, three keys to a lasting legacy. And so let's start with the first one. Be vulnerable. Be vulnerable. Be vulnerable with others. Look at verse 19. It says, I serve the Lord with great humility and with tears, and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. Humility, tears, testing. He was vulnerable. He was exposed to these people. And they truly know him because he was with them. He was fully present with them. He was fully vulnerable with them, talking about his tears and his trials. And a lot of us face trials, and sometimes they're not big, huge things, but they're the day-to-day things. They're the, for us parents, maybe it's the trials of sleep battles with our young kids or the rebellious stage of our teenagers. I know just recently I had a trial and just an utter failure. Uh, at my house, it was waffle day, and uh, I love waffle day at my house. My wife makes awesome waffles. And uh, so we're around the breakfast table, me and my three kids, and my wife and I are talking, and our conversation is turning into a disagreement. And my eldest, Jeremiah, who's seven, was antagonizing his siblings. He he got his waffle taken away for a moment. And he's just saying, can my waffle back? Can my waffle back? Can my waffle back? Can my waffle back? And I, I did what no parent should ever do. And I took that buttered waffle and brought it right to his face. (laughs) That's a good mix of, right, laughter and appalled. Um, That's kind of what it should be. And I'm just thinking to myself, wow, I'm a 35-year-old adult and father, and I just pie-faced 
my seven-year-old son out of frustration. So it's not one of my proudest dad moments, but I quickly realized my blunder, or just shortly after my sense of satisfaction subsided, <laughs> and, uh, and I brought him in the other room, and we got a washcloth, and we wiped off his face, and I talked to him about what he was doing was not right, but that was no excuse for what I did. And I had failed. I messed up. I apologized. The thing is, I need to show that I mess up too. And this is not how I want to live. I don't want to make these mistakes, but I am going to make mistakes. It's okay to tell that to me, and it's okay for me to tell that to you. See, I wanted to model that to him because I want him to trust me. I don't want him not trusting me every time we get to waffle day. And I think that's what we see Paul doing here too. And how do we know that? Because that's kind of what he's saying. He's saying, hey, I shared my life with you. I was exposed. You knew my trials. There's the tears, the humility. And the humility word here is more of a a negative sense in terms of the first century context. Uh, It's more like lowliness or weakness. Um, A good parallel verse is in 1 Corinthians 2.3. Paul says, to that church in Corinth, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. See, to have a lasting legacy, we need to let people into our hearts. We need to have our lives exposed to others around us, exposing our weaknesses, our tears, and our struggles. Why? Well, here's why. Because when we do that, God gets the glory. And it's living exposed in those weaknesses in confidence, though, that God's grace covers that. See, because being weak and humble is not really our culture's way. We want things nice and shiny and excellent. It's not natural for us to show these things. But see, what happens is when we share, when we expose, we allow God to further cement his grace, his mercy, and his love in our heart. It opens us up to be able to him continue to work in maybe some areas we need guidance. And even furthermore, it's going to help the people around us feel that we're credible, we're authentic, we're trusted, and they will want to share with you their tears, their trials, and their struggles. And see, we are called to be people that enter into that. I love what N.T. Wright has to say about this. He says, we are called to be people of prayer, in the places where people are in pain, just so that the presence of God can be with the people in pain. And for people to do that in our life, we have to open up and do that. Because when we do that and we've built the trust, God will show up in big ways. The ways that will make a lasting impact now, and more importantly, for eternity. See, it creates these deep friendships that can only happen when vulnerability is there. And we look further in the passage, if you go look at verse 36, this is what it says. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. These are men kneeling before a holy God, confident in his grace, weeping, embracing, and kissing one another as they say goodbye. 
these friendships are at the deepest level. It's the ones that you and I want, and it's the kind of friendships that actually impact our character and the path that we're on, where Jesus is leading us, and it also allows us to impact the character and path that other people are on as well. And it's something we have to practice with one another. It's not something we can do here in a worship service when we gather. We have to do this, as Paul says, in house to house. And here's another thing. This is hard. I'm saying it, and it's, it's not, this isn't easy. You have to build relationships, and you have to really trust to put yourself out there. But it is what God's called us to do, and we need to lean into that, and this will help us leave a lasting legacy because God is at the heart of it. Okay, that's the first key. What's the second key? So the second key is be a disciple and disciple maker. Now, there's two words there, and I could have made them two different points, but I didn't, and you'll see why in a second. But let's look back at the text, verse 18. This is what Paul says. When they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. He's not saying, remember I was living with you? That's not the way he's saying it. He's saying, you know how, you know in this way, the way that I was living with you. And jump down to verse 20. He said, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. What is he saying? What are the, what's this preaching helpful things? What is that? It's discipleship. It's what Jesus called us to do. I, I really like the rephrasing from the message version of Matthew 28 when Jesus said this. He says, go out and train everyone you meet far and near in this way of life. Training, disciple making, in this way that we're to live. Why? Because we all need help. We all need help. In a recent NPR research study, they looked at 20 months of New York Times obituaries. And they were looking for anything that stood out. And what they did find was one word stood out far and above all the other words in the obituaries. And the word was help. And this is what they said about it. I was fascinated when I saw that word because when you're analyzing 2,000 paragraphs of text, you wouldn't expect one or two words to stick out and stand out as prominently as this did. And what we found fascinating when we went through some of those descriptors was the fact that the help took on different contexts. For example, Reverend Rick Curry, who helped veterans and disabled people by running writing and acting workshops. There's Jocelyn Cooper, who was a grassroots organizer in Brooklyn in the 60s, and she helped pave the way for the first African-American woman to sit in the U.S. Congress. It's beautiful that the people are remembered in terms of helping people. And even more fascinating was the fact that the overwhelming majority of obituaries featured people famous and non-famous who did seemingly extraordinary things. They made a positive dent in the fabric of life. They helped. It was beautiful how that word stood out so strongly. And you see, Jesus is the way. He's the only one who's lived the perfect human life. And he's the model for what it means for us to follow. So he's the one who knows what is most helpful. 
He knows where we need our most help. He's given us the Holy Spirit to help us. And so we have to be submitting ourselves to be trained in the way of Jesus. And along the way, learn that so we can train others and help others who need help. But we have to be Jesus' disciple first. And so it's not just a way of thinking. It's not just a philosophy, but it's a way of living as well. It's all-encompassing from heart, mind, and life. You know, one way to look at it is this way. Dallas Willard, who, is, uh, who was a famous philosopher and Christian, uh, he says this about discipleship. Discipleship involves doing everything as if Jesus were doing it. As disciples, we say, yes, I will learn to do all the things that Jesus said to do. That's when we become his students. Through this process, we learn things we never thought about. We build lives that are not just ours, but God's as well. See, when Jesus says, love your enemy, that's what we are to do. When he says, pray for those who persecute you, that's what we're to do. We're not to look and go, well, I like this part and I don't like this part, or this part's easier, so I'll do that instead of this part that's harder. And part of this is also, let me ask you this. If Jesus were in your shoes, running the company that you're running, how would it look different? If Jesus was in your shoes, making your calendar, how would he schedule it differently? That's part of what it means to be a student of Jesus because when we are trained in this way, we are changed by Jesus in this way, our lives become transformed in ways thought impossible and we become more truly human like Jesus. See, he was the one who did it perfectly and he's the only one worthy of our worship and what we worship is what we become more like. So if we are to worship anything besides Jesus and follow in a path, something other than Jesus is actually to dehumanize ourselves, to become less human. And it goes against what we are created for. We're image bearers of God, and that's the path that we're meant to go on. Because when we live this way, like Paul, like Jesus, we will leave a lasting legacy. And we have to submit ourselves to this way. We must saturate ourselves in the way of Jesus. And how do we do this? Well, Paul says here, first. Uh, 36, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance. Living a life with God in all things and learning from the word of his grace, the Bible. And we need to soak ourselves in it by ourselves and in community. See, the opening statement I said to be a disciple and a disciple maker because actually what it meant to be a disciple in the first century of Jesus was to also be a disciple maker. You did not have to make a distinction of the two. To be a student of Jesus was to know that you would have to be in, in learning to teach others to do the same as Jesus did. And so let me ask you, who's discipling you and who are you discipling? It's what we're called to do. This is what will leave a lasting legacy. Okay, let's look at the last key for today and probably the one that you may be expected on something about being on mission everywhere, which is the last key is to share your faith. 
is to share your faith. You know, Matthew 28, Jesus told us, go and make disciples. But how does that process start? How, how, how does that start? Well, Paul shows us in verse 21, he said, this is the way I lived with you. This is how I did it. Here's verse 21. He says, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. We're to declare to everyone that there's a turn to God in repentance, to turn away from our way of living, our way of thinking, our sinful ways, and turn towards God in his ways, in his path, toward Jesus in the way to what it means to be perfectly human, God image bearers. And we can do that in faith. We do that in putting our faith alone in Jesus. And we have to declare that. And we, when we do that, big things happen. But declaring it to others isn't easy. It isn't. We all, we all a lot of us are thinking, well, I want to be that person. I, I want to do that, but I, I just, mm, I, this is hard. It, and it actually reminds me of this TED Talk I listened to recently um, about procrastination. Um, outing myself as a procrastinator. If you're even a little bit of a procrastinator in anything, I would go watch this video. It's hilarious and also informative. But one thing stood out from what he said on the talk was this. When he was asked to do the TED Talk, um, he realized something that his dream wasn't to do a TED Talk. He thought that was his dream. But that wasn't his dream. His dream was to have told people that he had done a TED Talk in the past. Not to do it, that's scary and crazy, but I want to be able to tell people I did it. And I think that's a lot where we are when it comes to sharing our faith. We're scared about going and doing it, but we want to be people that have said we've done it, and we can tell the stories of what God did and tell the stories of what happened in this person's life, but not actually do it. And, be, and the reason that we don't do it a lot of times is there's hurdles in our way. There's these hurdles in our mind, in our hearts, and so I want to just take the rest of our time to just look at three particular hurdles, there's more than this, to sharing our faith and talk about those. So I already kind of alluded to the first hurdle. It's scary. It's scary. It's, it's the biggest decision that we've made in our life. It's the biggest decision that someone else will make in their life. You don't want to mess them up or screw it up or give them the super wrong theology. Uh, but here's, here's the thing we've got to remember, that God has done all the biggest things in this. He's done all the biggest things. He's the one who started the, the plan to come after us, to rescue us, to send Jesus, to live this way, to die, to raised from the dead and give us the Holy Spirit and changed our life and he's the one at work in us. He's done all of the heavy lifting. And when we realize that and that he somehow invites us to be a part of inviting others into his kingdom, not just now but for forever, we can enter into it as more of a privilege. And sometimes we just need to remind ourselves, wow, God does all the heavy lifting, not just in my life and what he did in terms of the scope of history, but also that he's going to do all the heavy lifting when you share your faith. He's going to show up. And a lot of times you won't know this until you go and do it. You won't get to see that he has done that and will do that unless you just step out and do it. Step out 
and trust him. So that's the first one. But our second hurdle is maybe one a lot of us think about, well, it'll be awkward or it's going to be offensive. Our culture is offended by everything. It's going to be awkward or offensive. Well, you know what? It might be awkward, especially those first few times if you've never done that before. But we have to get comfortable talking about this. It's the most important thing in our life. And the more we get comfortable talking about it, the less awkward it becomes, or at least the less awkward for us it becomes. And I think a great way to think about this and to help just the conversation go a lot easier for you is start with where they are, not with what you know. Get to know their story. Get to know their worldview. Get to know their heart. What's going on in their life? Start with where they are, not with what you know. Because that, that will help the conversation be less awkward. Okay, now it's not, let's say it's not so awkward, but it's just offensive. Everyone is offended by the Bible. Well, and the truth is, the gospel is offensive. It just is, and, and will be. And Tim Keller talks about this idea, how the gospel will offend every person and every culture that has ever existed. And so, when someone says, this offends me about the Bible, this part offends me, so I can't believe the Bible, you can say, well, actually, that's good. That's good that it offends you. It probably means it's true. And they'll go, what? And you say, well, here, just listen to me for a second. If the Bible was created out of one ancient culture for one culture, it should fit that culture and not any of the others. But if it was from God it would make sense that it would fit no one culture, no one people group, and it would offend everyone at some level. And another way to look at this is this way. And it offends cultures differently. It offends cultures differently. You can say, well, if I take the Bible and I bring it to the Middle East and we talk about forgiveness and righting the wrongs and justice um, and letting, turning the other cheek. They'd be like, no, we don't, that, that doesn't make any sense to us. But we talk about them about sexuality and marriage, and they go, absolutely, totally agree with that. That's to say about that. Now, you see where I'm going with this. Flip side on the Twin Cities, it's going to be the opposite. Talk about forgiveness, turning the other cheek. Oh, that's a high ideal. That's what we should attain to. We talk about sexuality and marriage. They're going to go, oh, that's regressive. That's, that's ancient. That's, that's, that's not true. And so what you actually can find is that when someone says they're offended by the Bible, and our, and our culture has decided that this, this is offensive about the Bible, you can actually tell them, well, isn't that maybe a little ethnocentric? You think one culture has the keys to what's wrong with the Bible? I don't think so. And so once they've figured out what you've just done to them, um, you can just slowly lean in and talk about your own weakness, your own things there, because you can say the reason why the Bible will offend every person in every culture is because the world is broken. No one's going to disagree with that, and that we're all broken. No one's going to disagree with that. And so then you can say, well, if it's going to offend everybody, and our culture can't have the keys to what is offensive about the Bible. Can we just look at this person, Jesus, see what he said, see what he did, 
And if that's true, maybe, just maybe, we can come to change our minds about what is offensive because we start and are transformed by Jesus. And now, there's a lot of what I said there that you could go on Facebook and throw down some type of like ethnocentric truth bomb. That's not what I'm doing. I'm helping us just to think a little differently and think through it. Don't use it as some type of like, you're never going to argue someone into the kingdom of God. You're never going to argue them into it. It's not about that. It's about just having a conversation and helping them see some different perspectives. And so that's, that's the second one. So let's get to the third one. The third hurdle is you're just, you're stuck. You're just plain stuck. And a lot of us are stuck because we're going, well, I'm just going to keep praying until God kind of mystically kicks me forward and I actually just do it. Or you're thinking, well, I just, I just, I don't feel like that kind of person. I just, I shouldn't, I, I don't know. I just don't feel that way. I'll just keep praying until I get it. Now, here's the deal. A lot of us are praying and listening for the right time to tell our story, to tell the gospel to those people that are around us, and that is something we should do. We should be praying about that. But if we haven't or are never sharing our story and sharing the gospel, we might not be listening very well, and me included. Might not be listening very well. See, let's look at it this way. Let's say you wanted to be a chef. Something very important to be a chef is to understand flavor, is to eat, to understand saltiness and sweetness and spiciness and all the good stuff about eating. But will you become a good chef by just continually eating? If you just keep eating and eating and eating, will you become a good chef? No, it's crazy. You have to actually start cooking at some point. It's the cooking that helps you get better at cooking. See, a lot of us, I I need to remind us that prayer is not practice for sharing your faith. It's preparation. Just like the eating is the preparation for being a good cook, prayer is the preparation for sharing your faith. But to get better at cooking, you actually have to cook. To get better at sharing your faith, you actually have to do it. And will it be weird the first time? Probably. Was for me. But we're called to do that. And here's, here's just a helpful reminder from Paul on this. I mean, Paul is like the super expert, right? He's got the, everything all together. Wrong. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 2, 3. I started that verse earlier. We're going to go through verse 5. He says this, I came to you in weakness, and great fear, and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your f- faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. It was not with wise and persuasive words. He did not have it all together. He was weak, fear, trembling. But it was God's power in his life, God's work on his heart, sharing that with those around him and sharing them about Jesus. That's what, that's, it's leaning on God's power not your fancy words, not your fancy arguments. See, just trust in God's power that he's changed your life and it will be the same power that will help you to share and have it change their life. And so maybe today for you, one one step could be this, that you just are going to write down a name, 
a name of a person that you know is far from God, but leaning into your life, that you're just going to pray for every day, look for ways to care for that person, and look for the opportunity that God presents for you to share your story in the gospel with them. I encourage you to do that. If that's a spot you're at, just write that one person's name somewhere you're going to have it and bring it maybe in your Bible. Because that one person could have a huge impact that you don't even know what God's going to do through them. In the opening story, I talked about Thomas Phillips and the impact he had on Chuck Colson and just the incredible impact that Chuck Colson has had because he leaned in and shared his faith with that one friend. See, it's because I think Thomas Phillips would agree with this age-old statement. What you leave behind is not what is engraved in stone monuments, but is what is woven into the lives of others. And what we weave in is to be Jesus. And we have to be vulnerable. We need to expose ourselves, our heart, to one another. Be a disciple. Be a student of Jesus, and in doing so, teach others to do the same. Share your faith. Take steps of faith and trust that God will work through people like you and me. He's given his mission to you and me to share it. That's, how can he use you and me? But he decides to do it that way. It's awesome. We're to help weave Jesus in the very fabric of our being and the lives of those around us because that is what will leave a legacy worth leaving because it won't be a legacy of ourselves. It'll be a legacy of Jesus. And that one is eternal. Let's pray.